Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Nice to see familiar faces and a few new faces. Um, We've been studying since December the Heart Sutra on a good night, line by line, on most nights, word by word. And uh, we've been taking our time to look at the Heart Sutra, which is probably one of the most popular Buddhist texts and chants. Instead of as a source of doctrine, um, as a kind of uh, teaching or insight, direct yogic insight, that cuts through using negation and this teaching on emptiness, um, everything we're holding on to, most especially our viewpoint. Um, Even technique. And after last class, there were a lot of questions about dependent origination. And so I want to try and just refine that a little bit. There were, seemed there was some confusion. And so um, I'll start off with uh, the passage we were working with last time, which is John Cage's response to the Heart Sutra from his poem, Art and Overpopulation. To stop the estrangement between us, to overcome the patriarchal thinking, the authoritarian structures, and the coldness human not-togetherness. Heart Sutra refined. One more time. To stop the estrangement between us, to overcome the patriarchal thinking, the authoritarian structures, and the coldness human not togetherness. So it's interesting to notice the authoritarian structures of the mind. And in the simple exercise of noticing sound, the first way we notice that is a separations made where a sound is turned into an object and then there's a subject that's experiencing the sound. And so as soon as there's preference around the sound, then there's a me that is listening to the sound. And one of the things we've explored in the past few weeks is how if you actually try and find the location where the ear ends 
and sound begins, you can't find it. And we were talking about that in relationship to the line in the Heart Sutra that says, no eye, no ears, no tongue, no body, no mind. So if there's no eye, there can, there's no form. And if there's no form, there's no realm of sight, which is a reversal of dependent origination. So, um, again, as a review, in Buddhist psychology, there's this notion that consciousness is dependently originating, which means that unlike in our Western philosophical framework where we think there's just this thing called consciousness, and because there's consciousness, the eye can see the green wall. But in Buddhist psychology, and some of you can watch this in your meditation practice, as soon as the object and the sense organ come together, let's say the ear and a sound come together, then there's a realm of listening. But listening consciousness or ear consciousness is not a permanent thing. You see? The consciousness occurs when the sense organ and sense object come together. And that's the beginning of what's called dependent origination. And the core of that teaching is trying to show you, not through doctrine, but in verifiable, visceral, embodied experience, that, you know, just before you get enlightened, you'll hear a little ring. (laughs) But if your ethics are not good, nothing happens. (laughs) It's just a ring. Um... When the ear and the sound come together, then there is listening. You see? (laughs) You just keep that on. (laughs) Um, Which reminds us that not only is everything that we perceive impermanent and changing, so... You notice this with sound, right? Uh, you know, this practice is just entering the shifts, that sound's shifting. It's, a sound arises, it has a life, and then it passes away. And because it's arisen, it's passing away. One sound after another, after another. But the Buddhist Abhidharma goes further and says, but the, the organs of perception are just as impermanent as the object of perception. So it's not just that this floor is impermanent or that the, the sounds are impermanent, but the sense organ, the apparatus that one uses to notice what's being noticed is also impermanent. And the fact that you say, I am noticing something the creation of a me that's noticing something is also dependently originating and has no continual substantiality in time and space. Sorry. And you can watch this in the mind, right? At some level, you realize that everything is changing and so the only way the mind can get a handle of that is to get bigger than the physical and to get metaphysical and create a story about it. 
And then in our story about it, we create a me that is experiencing what's occurring. That's that's the background. And we spent, I think, the whole Tuesday last week on this. But then the Heart Sutra is saying, no, no, actually, if you really look for the eye or the ear or the nose or the tongue, you can't find it because your ear does not start in one place and end somewhere else. That's actually taking the ear and turning it into a thing. But the ear itself is interdependent with all of these other factors, like 12 billion years of evolution. You see? So that it's cutting through the doctrine or the way that you turn the technique into a kind of doctrine. No, 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 no eye, no ears, no tongue. That every form, including your ear, is characterized by What's that? Emptiness. Antipermanent. If something's impermanent, it's empty of substantiality because it's flowing. And if everything has the characteristic of emptiness, it means that there's no such thing as a thing. Because everything is dependent on so many other things. You see? This reminds me a little bit of the end of the Bhagavad Gita. Has anybody read that? So at the end of it, after Krishna and Arjuna go through their whole whatever they went through together, Arjuna then turns to Krishna. I think we all do this. At the end of this, I mean, after he has this transcendent experience, and then Arjuna turns to Krishna and says, Krishna, why did this happen to me? (laughs) And Krishna has a beautiful response. He says, the conditions that came together for this to occur in this life for you are so complex it's beyond your comprehension. He doesn't say you can trace the reasons back to your mother and your father. (laughs) He says that you, you can't actually know because the conditions are so complex. but you can't even know who you are or what you are in the context of conditions. I find this quite compelling. I don't know about you, but in my own life, I can trace every conflict and pattern of suffering to a way that I'm trying to take something impermanent and make it permanent Mm -hmm. through storytelling which is a really healthy function because we all love a good story and we need them to get around in the world but we don't see the way the mind is framing something and reifying it as a thing and taking it out of the flow that it is. And what the heart's are suggesting that the ground is impermanence. It's a groundless ground. It's just like water. You know, water can be a ground. You all know this from spending time in Ontario in summertime in the lakes. There are so many insects that can walk across the water. 
with those long, skinny legs, you know? And also, you're 70, what is it now, they say? 90-something. Okay, you're 90-something percent water. So the ground of this is also flow. And that impermanent ground is something that you can count on. Are there any questions before we keep going? Don't take my word for this. You know, even just watching the mind in the meditation practice, right? Just watching how thoughts just parade through awareness, one after another after another, with no beginning, we don't know where they come from, and no end. Likewise, sensations, images, feelings are moving through awareness and noticing that flow from a place of stillness unties a really important neurotic knot that most of us are in which is referring all of that stuff back to a me like somehow these sensations are mine or that sound reminds me of something, or I am listening to the sound, as opposed to really tuning into the visceral experience of sound and seeing that it doesn't refer back to a me. And I like to play around with this in yoga asana class, because you can enter into a yoga pose where patterns of sensation are creating a lot of feeling. This happened for anyone tonight? And whenever a lot of feeling occurs, the mind quickly creates a story about it. And then we're in a relationship to the story, which is a kind of virtual reality, rather than the flow of what's arising. But then what's interesting is the narrative, if you look at it, that's created has me as a central character. You see? And then we've put the experience into a context of this anthology of I, me, and mine. Chapter after chapter we're writing, how my life is going for me. As if it's ever going to really fit. And then we try and make it fit in all kinds of ways. And then our relationships suffer. Because nobody wants to be fit into your narrative. Well, they do in the honeymoon. But then after the honeymoon, people don't want your story anymore. Because no, nobody can fit into the frame. And so, seeing the framer framing the experience reveals intimacy. So, the definition of nirvana... Nirvana means to extinguish or to blow out. The definition of nirvana in one place in the Pali Canon is uh, nirvana is the relinquishing of wanting. So when wanting is relinquished, the self-image is blown out. There's a kind of nice definition of nirvana. 
So when wanting is relinquished, the self-image is blown out. And we've all had these momentary experiences of this. But then when the authoritarian mind comes in to make it all into this great story again, you get what John Cage calls cold human not-togetherness. So that this kind of reification of stories is the enemy of intimacy. The enemacy, uh, the enemacy? <laughs> Ooh, I don't even want to go down. <laughs> I had an image that just came. <laughs> so seeing colors and hearing sounds is intimacy. Is intimacy. Um, there's a, a text I've been quoting from for a long time that I've never that has never been translated into English, and Ronit just found that it was just published, the first time, um, and so I just got this as a little gift, and uh, I've been spending time on this one passage. So, listen to this from the Vegetable Root Discourse. The true Buddha is in the home. The true Tao is in everyday functions. If you maintain an honest heart, a harmonious manner, a pleasant countenance, and graceful words with your father, mother, brothers, and sisters, and you flow with them, each in turn, in wholehearted accord of body and spirit, then isn't this 10,000 times better than breath control and introspection? this is your life this is how it happens and your life can only happen moment by moment it can't happen in any other way so the technique of noticing the arising and passing away of sound the arising and passing away of an inhale and an exhale is direct knowing, effortless knowing, of how life happens. We're not looking for the true nature of reality because that fixes reality in a preconceived idea. What we're looking for is the ground that's flowing. So not how life is, but how life happens. How life happens. Yes. How do you participate with that then? Like if life is happening, like what do you do? Like you go Less. With the flow. <laughs> you see, what the Heart Sutra is about to say is that you can't go with the flow because there was no you to begin with. Mm. You see? That's like we were talking about last week. Imagine if you got enlightened and then said, oh, enlightenment, just like I thought it would be. <laughs> exactly like I knew it would be. So your idea of enlightenment separates you and enlightenment. Your idea of going with the flow assumes that there's a you that's going to flow. But when you enter the house, the home, your brother, your sister, 
and you enter into the flow that is relationship, there's no you having the relationship. When you look at your father, and you look at your father through the paradigm of he's my father, it's hard to have flow because there's been a reduction. There's been a narrowness created. And sometimes that's good. But if you don't see the way you framed something, then you can't flow. So sometimes wanting something would be good too. Do you know what I mean? No. Well, so if you let go of wanting everything, I just don't see how I... And I know that I'm saying I. Yeah. But the, the word is tanha, which is a second noble truth, which is usually translated as desire mm-hmm. uh, or craving sometimes. And I'm just retranslating it as wanting. Okay. Because I... Just to get a sense that desire is something really healthy, you know? But when there's desire with contraction around it, wanting it to be different than it is, then there's trouble. Okay, so you see desire operating, but without the contraction around it. And that's why the sitting practice is so helpful, because you can watch that process come up. Yeah. Uh, I once heard Stephen Batchelor describe it as um, like this. This is desire, and this is wanting. Right? So this was picked up and not this. Mm-hmm. And our desires are going to be unique because you never leave your subjectivity because we all have this flow moving through very unique plumbing systems. And that's really, really healthy. But when there's contraction around it, then there's suffering. We could spend the whole night on, on that point. How do you get rid of that contraction? Then? Well, you can't get rid of the contraction. You just see the contraction operating and contracting, and then it can't contract anymore. See, the problem with clinging is that in the light of awareness, clinging can't cling so well. It's kind of like, lately I've been going to No Frills and buying the house brand saran wrap they have there, which isn't actually saran wrap, it's like the no-frills saran wrap, and it doesn't cling. <laughs> it's like you, you put it around the bowl, and then you have to put an elastic band around it, because it does you know? Has anybody been doing this, you know? Or the people who come to your house and send you like 500 yards of that stuff, you know? So, and this is the difference between consciousness and awareness. Consciousness is always clinging around something because there has to be an object for consciousness. So consciousness is like, you know, you're going for the heroin and you're saying, I really shouldn't be doing this, this isn't good for me. You know, you're going for your, you know, 14th chocolate cookie. You know, I shouldn't be eating this, this is... Okay, that's consciousness, okay? But awareness doesn't take the shape of the object. Okay, so when there's awareness of wanting, wanting can't. It's like, it's like um, clinging is like 
like the lube for desire, you see? And without it, it doesn't operate, you see? So, when awareness sees wanting, wanting gets shy or something, and and it can't cling. But you don't do anything. That's the point. And that takes technique. (laughs) That's the form. Is, is this making sense a little bit? I know I'm speaking in paradoxes a little bit. If you don't like paradoxes, this is the wrong sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'm thinking in frames again. Like it's a very concrete uh, doubt that I have. It's about when you have sons or daughters. I think you have to, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know how, uh, how you can uh, practice all you are saying with, with kids, kids mm-hmm. uh, if you, you, if you have children, yeah. you are a mother, yes. so, so I am in the frame of yes. mother. And yeah. my daughters in the frame of daughters. So yes. And they and and they are in a context or a frame that yes. is a family. Yes. So. Yes. Um, and the family is framed in a cultural version of family, and that culture is framed, and you know, and it keeps going. But even just to go to the relative level of a mother and a daughter. Um, that daughter does not belong to you. Absolutely. You know, I know, just speaking of the flow again from the vegetable root discourse there, that with, with my son, when I'm flowing with him, there's no authoritarian structure happening. We're just flowing together. And there's a lot of space. And um, when I take the position of father and identify with that role, there's a lot of separation that happens. And the flow starts to fall apart. Except that you also need that too. You see? Shinri Suzuki says it beautifully, where he says, if you want to control a cow, give it a large pasture. especially, I think he said teenager or cow, I'm not sure. (laughs) You know? So, how to create space enough that the relative functioning of mother and daughter can happen, but to also see simultaneously that those roles don't actually exist. That you're so much more than a mother. And your daughter is much more than a daughter. I could tell a story about this if you haven't read The Inner Tradition of Yoga. Has anybody not read that? If you ever see that title on a book, you should go grab that book right off the shelf. Um, But there's a story in it that, that is a story of Krishna that some of you might know is a wonderful story exactly about this that 
Krishna's mother is um, is playing in the park um, on Sororan, and uh, Krishna is over with some kids in the sandbox eating dirt. And Krishna's mother calls out and says, Krishna, are you eating dirt again? And Krishna says, uh, and the other kids behind Krishna are going, you know, and Krishna is keeping his mouth closed. So his mother comes over and pulls him by the ear. People do this anymore? Pulls him by the ear and opens his mouth so wide and looks inside of his mouth and sees that it's caked in sand. And then looks at the sand and then looks into the back of his palate and suddenly everything goes black and she sees just his tongue and then she sees the moon and then she sees the stars and then she sees herself as Krishna's mother and then she passes out. (laughs) She falls down in the park And then Krishna kneels over her and waves over her the illusion that she is his mother. And then she gets back up and everything's okay. Should we unpack that a little bit? (laughs) So she looked. So this is like the typical relative, like she is the mother taking care of the kid, you know? And you feel like a mother when you're doing that. And Krishna feels like He's that mother's child, right? Um, but she has this experience looking in his mouth where she has this kind of mystical experience where she gets out of herself for a minute. She sees his mouth and then she sees the stars, the moon. Then she sees her self-image as the mother. And it's almost too much for her and she passes out. Most interpreters say it's too much for her And so she can't have an awakening experience because um, she can't let go of her identification as being a mother. And I actually don't buy it. My interpretation, and we can argue about this, but my own interpretation of this story in the book is that um, it's actually she wakes up to the fact that she is both. She is both. She that is the experience. The passing out is the experience of realizing that she both is a mother and she's not the mother at the same time. And that as parents, one of the things we're most identified with is being the father, being the mother. This is my son. This is my daughter. But actually our kids don't belong to us. They're not I, me, or mine. And as the Heart Sutra will remind us, because they're impermanent flows, they don't actually exist. You see, Freud and Kierkegaard and um, um, Nietzsche, for them, you know, our greatest fear is that the self is going to die. And this story that you made, at the moment of death, you don't know what's going to happen to it. And that's what we repress the most, is this fear of death. But the Heart Sutra perspective is, what you repress most is not the fear of death, 
but it's the fact that the self didn't actually exist to begin with. It never was a thing that existed except as a function of conditions. But it's not an entity that is born or dies. It's just a conditioned arising. Or you could say it's just a condition that's being born and dying every moment. Does this make sense? Sort of? Please ask questions if it's like... I I just want to read one poem and then we'll keep going. It's on this topic. This is by a great American poet. Um, don't often hear that much about named Jack Gilbert. It's called Tear It Down. Tear It Down. We find out the heart only by dismantling what the heart knows. By redefining the morning, we find morning that comes just after darkness. We can break through marriage into marriage. By insisting on love, we spoil it, get beyond affection, and wade mouth deep into love. We must unlearn the constellations in order to see the stars. But going back towards childhood will not help. The village is not better than Pittsburgh, Only Pittsburgh is more than Pittsburgh. Rome is better than Rome. In the same way, the sound of raccoon tongues licking the inside walls of the garbage tub is more than the stir of them in the muck of the garbage. Love is not enough. We die and are put into the earth forever. We should insist while there is still time. We must eat through the wildness of her sweet body already in our bed, to reach the body within that body. The body within the body. The body free of your image of the body. And I love the title, Tear It Down. This is what the Heart Sutra is doing. No, 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 no. What are you holding on to? No. Does that belong to me and mine? No. Are you a mother? Yes. And no. (laughs) Even when the child is in the mother, you have this placenta that maintains a separation that feeds both the mother and the infant growing there. But when the baby's born, the placenta belongs and doesn't belong to both of them. It creates an actual physiological separation. Together and not together. Yin and Yang. McCain-Obama. (laughs) you can't have Obama is dependent on McCain Mm -hmm. McCain is dependent on Obama you can't have a prison and people on the inside without the outside interdependent
comments, questions, anger? I get confused about the role of the frame and the role of the relative positions. Yeah. It seems to me they're important. The frames are important to be able to yeah. say at a certain point, yeah. you were a child and a parent. Yeah. But also to be able to release the frame. Um, yeah. And it seems to me, so the Buddha, for example, yeah. would he, it's the idea that he would have been living without any frames or he would have just been seeing through them as he was interacting with people. I mean, the intimacy that he would have experienced, mm -hmm. or one who is is experiencing enlightenment, is that totally without a frame? Is that possible? Well, I, you know, I'm not going to speak for the Buddha, or <laughs> 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 uh, you know, I'll be kicked out of here, really. But, uh, but um, or and. Um, the Buddha had a temporary, impermanent experience of samadhi, looking at the morning star, where he woke up, and there was nobody looking at nothing. And you've all had a momentary experience, making art, making love, making music. I think for most young people, their first spiritual experience is listening to music. For our son, like you put on Johnny Cash, Folsom Prison, and he's gone, you know. And um, in that experience, there's a temporary relief from the self-image maker, you know, where we get we touch something more original, you know. And um, but what happens in the Buddha's story is so lovely because. The Buddha, several days after this experience, felt unsatisfied. He felt that something was missing. Something was missing. And so he went to the next town to find his two yoga teachers. Does, do you know the story? He went to go find his two yoga teachers, and they had died. Because he wanted to tell them about his experience. Still unsatisfied. This is after the samadhi. Then he went to go find his three students and he taught them the Four Noble Truths. And then when he was teaching, he felt that uh, that's when he started talking about his experience of enlightenment. Because in samadhi, in the complete integration of subject and object, there's no karma. There's no action and there's no residue. But life doesn't happen that way. So then he went and started taking action, and then there was consequence, and then he's back in life again. And I think a lot of us, you know, we want to have some experience that's like outside of karma, you know, but that's also temporary and impermanent. That's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, the autobiography of a woman who actually did totally separate from her ego. Yeah. She was really into transcendental meditation for a long time. Yeah. And then she stopped that and suddenly one day just out of the blue she completely 
like left herself. Yeah. And for the next 15 years of her life, she did not identify with herself or, you yeah. know. But at the same time, she was completely in fear and anxiety the whole time. Mm -hmm. But there was no person who the anxiety related to of mm -hmm. her experience. Mm -hmm. So, like, she went through life, but didn't, yeah, didn't have a reference with us. Mm -hmm. But the framing doesn't stop. Yeah, the word that you're using is there's no identification. Yeah. This whole thing is just a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> you know, it's like and now we're in this like detective trying to go b step back and see how the identification happens. Mm -hmm. So what's being pointed out here is the break from identifying with our experience. Yeah. But the framer or if you want to call it the ego, never stops. Did you hear that? It doesn't, the ego doesn't stop. It still functions. But you need that. It's healthy. Oh, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> you see that the ego has no ontological reality. Mm -hmm. But it still functions. It's just, you're not the you you think you are. Breaking through marriage into marriage. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love this, like, breaking through her body already in your bed to touch the body. Again, not your visual sense of what your breath looks like, but actually to feel the breath moment by moment by moment by moment. To enter into life without the separation that's created by making a story about your experience. Yeah. So when you're in a relationship, yeah. and so a relationship is kind of like a couple of frameworks coming together. Uh -huh. right? So <laughs> then if, like, if, if you can practice not framing, but say, like, I mean, your son maybe doesn't do it naturally sometimes, uh -huh. just because he's in life, but mm -hmm. a lot of times you're always going to be his dad, right? Uh -huh. So how do we practice with the other framers, even if you start seeing through your frames? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the things that seems to happen is um, when you start to see how your framer operates, you can start to see other framers operate, and you can see how you're being framed. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you just have to live with Sometimes, yeah. I used to actually be a frame. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm really confused. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do <laughs> Maybe another time there's a wonderful... One of the Buddha's descriptions of how this operates is actually a passage called The House Builder, where he talks about the mind as a framer. If anybody knows that path, it's amazing. He goes into detail about how a house is framed as an analogy, mm. as a teaching as a teaching tool. It's really, really wonderful. Um, yeah. Is, is this is the language that framing is this like from, from Buddhist philosophy? The word framing? Yeah. No, the word is ahamkara. Uh, aham means I. Kara comes from the root kur, which is where we get the word karma, which means to make. So it's I maker, the I maker. Or mamamkara is the me maker. So um, 
which is usually translated as ego, but it's not a good translation. It's a little more subtle than that. It's watching the eye-making mechanism of the mind. Mm-hmm. And I like to call it the storyteller. Yeah. I think Heidegger talks a lot about in, in framing, too, so. Yeah. It's like the same uh, idea of how we separate from the world. Yeah, by yeah. Trying to see it like this. Totally. Yeah, and for Heidegger, uh, the greatest separation uh, is when you separate yourself out from time. And every artist knows that, right? You're, you're engaged in you know, writing or painting or whatever, and you lose the sense of time. And whenever there's a gap between the mind and time, there's suffering. And some of you who are into Heidegger, uh, recent scholarship is... Uh, I just read a wonderful paper, and I didn't know this, that when Heidegger wrote Being in Time, he was studying with D.T. Suzuki, who was teaching Dogen's text, time being <laughs> at the same time he was writing his, his check I, I, th- I thought that was really quite fascinating yeah. but any, and then he hit his sources really well like Jung and all of them can we wrap up mm-hmm. okay. Thank you. <clears throat> so let's finish chanting <clears throat>